Throughout the pandemic, we've heard a lot about plans. Plans to prevent the spread of disease, shut this down, keep this open, tape this off. And there's plans to roll out the vaccine, register with your health network, go to a pharmacy, keep an eye on Twitter, and look out for pop-ups. We've gone through different stages and variations of plans. Some plans we changed to reflect new information. Some plans we scrapped because they were just kind of bad. Bad planning. It's hard to make plans in a pandemic. I was supposed to be camping today. Freezing in a tent somewhere in the late May cold snap. Plans change. There are short-term plans and long-term, big-picture, legacy plans. Both have value, but the big-picture ones are harder to find. I think about the way the Prince Edward Viaduct included space for a subway system that didn't even exist yet. Now that's a plan. I think about how, after the last big, devastating epidemic, our medical and scientific community said we needed a plan for the next one. And about how we just kind of ignored that. I wonder if we will after this one, too. In city politics, some plans are more like statements of intent. Like, we put out into the universe what we say we desire. Like that book, The Secret. Like we're collapsing quantum wave functions with our divine cosmic intentionality. But there's not much talk of how or when or where the money will come from. That happens a lot. Some might even argue that's not really a plan. Sometimes we make big, generational, paradigm-setting plans and then ignore them entirely. Basically, cities are a collection of plans in various stages of success or failure, completion or revision. And we're going to show you how. Or anyway, that's the plan. This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting from a place of half-vaccinated, extremely guarded optimism, I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, with Ontario municipalities reviewing their official plans, I ask Civic Action CEO Leslie Wu and Ryerson Professor and Director of the School of Urban and Regional Planning, Pamela Robinson, about what Toronto needs to change about our guiding planning document. But first, we've talked about Rail Deck Park on this show before. The $1.7 billion plan to build a new public park right over the rail corridor downtown. Sadly, that dream seems to have burned up like a pair of wax wings. And the Toronto Star City Hall reporter Jennifer Pagliero tells us just what went wrong. Stand by. Okay, Jennifer, I wanted to take you back to 2016, uh, because that's when the Rail Deck Park was first announced. It was announced sort of in conjunction uh, between John Tory, uh, who was the mayor at the time, Jen Kiesmat, who was the chief planner at the time, and Joe Cressy, who, who remains the, the councillor. So this was kind of a bipartisan, uh, a political and a bureaucratic uh, fait accompli uh, People that uh, don't always stand together for announcements uh, had, had come together to announce that they were going to build an eight-hectare park over top of the rail corridor between Spadina and Bathurst, a, a new sort of urban oasis. Yeah, I remember it, actually. I was thinking about this uh, as we 
heard uh, some interesting news this week about going down to uh, basically we were standing in City Place where you kind of get a nice view of the rail corridor. And there was a press conference there. And we typically, because we work in the City Hall Bureau, cover whatever uh, Mayor John Tory is doing. But I remember there was sort of a lot of secrecy around this press conference. Usually we get some idea of, you know, at least the topic and the location sometimes gives it away. But I really had no idea. I just thought it was, you know, another regular weekday morning. And I went over there and uh, it was sort of like a, a game of clue. Like I was walking around this empty field, really, just looking at the people that were there. I saw that Keysmat was there. I said, OK, this is a big deal if, you know, Keysmat herself is here at this press conference. And then they had all of these poster boards up. And so I started walking around looking at the poster boards and I was like, oh, wow, OK, this is like completely out of left field. You know, it's not something the mayor talked about during the campaign. It's not something I had ever heard staff talk about. But apparently behind the scenes, it's something that uh, some bureaucrats had always dreamed of. Uh, and I guess the idea got pitched to Mayor Tory and he saw it as something to kind of latch on to politically and something that I think he genuinely thought would be good for the city. And, and that's kind of how it started. Yeah. On the politics side, uh, I remember the temperature kind of being that... Uh, Tory had not been making friends with the, the sort of downtown urbanist crowd. He had just pushed to maintain the Gardner East Expressway. There, there were woes over what was to be done uh, in terms of transit, like over in Scarborough, that sort of thing. And so that, that had alienated a lot of people downtown and a lot of sort of the progressive crowd. And then this comes out and it seems like something that everyone could get on board with. Yeah, it definitely it definitely was like a gift to the downtown crowd. You know, it was one of the first uh, announcements like that where we saw like a lot of, uh, you mentioned Councillor Joe Cressy is sort of, he's one of the sort of outstanding downtown councillors who is pushing a lot of uh, policy directions, you know, wh- whether it be around uh, drug overdose or shelters, homelessness. And then lately we've seen uh, he and the mayor work well together during the pandemic since Cressy is the chair of the Board of Health. But it was kind of one of those first moments where you saw them really standing shoulder to shoulder like, uh, on something that they really actually agreed on, not something that was just politically beneficial to both of them. And uh, council agreed on it as well uh, later that year, I believe. Yeah, I mean, in concept, it's a great idea, right? The find uh, space in the city, especially in the downtown core, where there isn't a lot of space that can be used as a massive, you know, they're calling it a new central park. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal to be able to tell your residents. But, you know, like with any political promise, there's always a price to be paid. And and I think we'll get into that. But that's really where I think this project kind of fell down. Part of the the tragedy as well uh, is is there was a competing vision in the shape of uh, Craft Acquisitions Corp and uh, PITS Development Inc. They had a a sort of competing proposal for what should be done with that space called ORCA. And uh, on on top of that, they seem to have purchased the air rights uh, for, you know, for listeners, it's so they they literally bought the rights to whatever happens in the air above the rail deck. Um, so that that was the first kind of hitch in, in the plan, the monkey wrench. Yeah, it was interesting because I initially thought, you know, well, this sounds like a like a pretty good city building opportunity, but how much does it cost? That was kind of my big question as a reporter back then. And then unbeknownst to me, but not unbeknownst to city staff, there was this uh, group, as uh, you've described, a consortium of different uh, construction companies that have done all different kinds of, of projects. They do a lot of home building in other parts of the GTA. 
And they had been moving behind the scenes to look at acquiring air rights, as you mentioned. Buying air rights is not dissimilar to buying land, uh, except that it's obviously the space above the land. And they had looked to potentially put in a development application. They had actually canvassed uh, city planners, which is usually kind of the pre-planning stage. Uh, Developers typically submit a formal proposal, but usually if it's a big project like that, you kind of take it to city staff and gauge their concerns about a project ahead of time. And that apparently had happened. According to the developers, they were told, like, don't bother. Because behind the scenes, the city had had this plan to create parkland. And that's sort of where the tension began with those competing visions for the space. Right. And now we have to do a difficult thing, which is to describe for listeners, especially outside of Ontario, the local planning appeal tribunal. Right. <laughs> so uh, I'll, I'll say the, the sort of, you know, the nut graph that, that everyone goes with it is a quasi judicial sort of affiliated with the provincial government whose job is to ensure that everything sort of follows good planning policy. Is that, is that how you would describe it? Yeah, pretty much. Like basically if a developer or a community disagrees with a planning proposal, whether it's a, a condo or, to, or the decision to turn, you know, a commercial space into housing or even, uh, in some cases, much smaller projects than that. There's this body and it's full of provincially appointed, uh, adjudicators where you can take your complaint and it runs kind of like a court. Uh, it's in an office tower, not that far from city hall. So it doesn't look a whole lot like a court, but you know, if you've never been to a courtroom, but you've watched, you know, law and order, it, it's, it's not that different. Mm-hmm. They sort of gave a, a gift to this whole rail deck concept a couple of years back because in order to sort of reserve the space above the rail corridor for park space, city council had to make an official plan amendment, which they did to kind of designate the air rights over that space as park space. Uh, that was challenged by the development consortium and it was upheld by the LPAT in, in 2019 saying that no, this, the city is in fact within its right to designate this for park space. And, and so that was seen as almost a slam dunk. Like, well, now, now we're going to build a, a park there. Yeah. I mean, to be frank, when that decision was rendered and, and I covered that and, and followed the decision, I kind of thought that was it. But it's important for listeners to understand that there were sort of two parallel uh, appeals happening at once. And so exactly what you said happened. The city had to designate this space over the downtown rail corridor, which for all other purposes is is basically industrial, to be solely park space. And by doing that, their hope was that it would preclude anything else, including condo towers, office towers, you know, a museum, just that it would just be open public plaza green space. And they, they won that. And that seemed like a real victory for the city. But there is this competing appeal that came from the fact that the development consortium had submitted a development application where they had proposed to build several towers on this space, claiming that they own the air rights. And as part of that process, it it went through sort of this regular rigmarole at City Hall where they submit all these documents, city planning reviews it, and then council kind of gets a final say. 
And because council had already had this other plan for the space, they, they said they wanted to build rail deck park. They obviously rejected the developer's application. And because of that, the developers also had a right to appeal that decision to this quasi judicial body. And that decision was still pending when the earlier zoning fight was decided. And the key thing there is that when they decided on the zoning issue, designating it for park space, they said that it would not prejudice the later decision because that development application actually came first. And so that's the sticky situation that the city found itself in recently. Right. And between that official plan amendment being upheld at the LPAD in 2019 and, and the sort of situation we find ourselves in now, most recently, in between that, there was discussions about those air rights. And uh, there was even an editorial in, in the Toronto Star saying that uh, now is, is really the time to go after these air rights for the city if they're serious about building this park. Yeah, so that's where things get kind of interesting. And there was a lot of discussion about, you know, what steps did the city actually take between that decision, as you mentioned, in 2019 and present day. And city officials will tell you, and as they've told me, that they were working towards trying to acquire the air rights. There were, as they saw it, still two problems in the way. One was that they don't actually have the right to build in that space. And two, that they don't actually have the capital dollars to create the park. Uh, It was last estimated by city staff to be around $1.7 billion to create the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And they did go about trying to purchase the air rights from the developers. They did enter into some kind of official negotiation, I'm told. The issue, I think, is, and this is, you know, what I understand of essentially private negotiations between the city and the developer, is that the developers were quoting a price much higher than what the city believed, having done an assessment of the of the value of the air rights. And I think the tricky part there is that the city was coming at it from the point of view that the LPAT had upheld their decision to designate the space as parkland. And it's just common sense that, you know, the value of parkland is much less than the value of land, or in this case, air rights, where you could build a giant condo tower. Because if you build a giant condo tower, then therefore you can make a lot more money. And so the value of the land increases. Mm -hmm. And I think what happened is that the developers were treating the air rights as though they might still win the second LPAT decision and the city was firmly of the view that the air right should be priced as though it will eventually be parkland. They basically couldn't come to any sort of reasonable agreement. Um, there are rules when it comes to the city purchasing or expropriating about it being at fair market value. And I think that they kind of hit a wall when it came to negotiating the air rights. And, you know, obviously it, it didn't move forward. Right. So that that kind of brings us to to the big news of of this month where everything seems to fall apart and can you can you walk us through that? Yeah, so uh I was uh minding my own business writing about the pandemic as uh, we kind of have been for uh, the past year when we heard that a decision had been rendered in this second LPAT appeal. So this is the one where the developers had submitted their proposal and and council had rejected it for these towers. And essentially, the LPAT agreed with the developers that the 
space uh, under, you know, provincial policy and rules was properly set out to be a mixed use area in line with something to the size and scale of what Kraft and the others uh, in the consortium had proposed and uh, didn't decide to make any amendments at all. Essentially, what the developers want to build, which is a multi-tower mixed-use development decked over the rail corridor, is essentially now permitted. And all that's left to do is uh, for them to actually submit a specific proposal, which uh, you know we can get into will set off another chain reaction of potential appeals. Right. Yeah. I mean, this was the result of an appeal. You know, basically the LPAT siding with the developers. Can can the city appeal this appeal? So the city can take the case to divisional court, but there's really specific rules about what you can appeal. You can't just appeal on sort of the merits of the decision. You have to argue that there was an error in law that the uh, panel at the LPAT made. So as far as I know from talking to city officials, they are currently combing through uh, what is a fairly long uh, written decision to see if there were any legal errors that would allow them the ability to challenge it. But of course, uh, these things can be easily thrown out of divisional court. Uh, you're sometimes grasping at straws when you're looking for at what is essentially a technical error. Right. So not not a lot to hold on to. No. In terms of the LPAT decision on, on this appeal that, that favored the the consortium, the craft acquisitions and the Orca plan, you know, they, they mentioned that this plan does represent good planning principles, which is really what they're, they're meant to uphold as a body. And, uh, I'm just wondering what that means, how, how they arrive at, at something like that. What is good planning principles in terms of their purview as the LPAT? Yeah. So it's important to understand this is a provincial tribunal. And so they are beholden to follow all of the provincial policies that are in place. There are um, provincial planning statements. There is the Provincial Planning Act. There are sort of all of these overarching rules about how to build and where you can build and, and what makes good development versus, um, you know, less desirable development. And these are often rules that are not so specific uh, and not so much tailored to, you know, individual neighborhood needs or sometimes even individual municipalities needs. And that's where you sometimes get really conflicting views about the LPAT. You know, the city is always there. Uh, they're there pretty much every day fighting planning appeals because a development does not conform with their idea of how a specific neighborhood, and, and these are city planners, how a specific neighborhood should be built. And uh, sometimes they're there because uh, it, it might conform with the city's idea of what should be built, but city councillors themselves don't agree. Uh, and of course, that's their prerogative as, as elected officials. And so I think, yeah, you see a bit of a, a discrepancy between, you know, what the province thinks is best and what the city decided was best for itself. And so you, there's this other um, sort of overlying tension that's existed for decades, almost 100 years, as it relates to this tribunal. As well, in, in the LPAT decision, it seemed like there was a moment where they're almost chiding the city for not making a, a good enough case against this uh, ORCA plan, you know, that they, they hadn't brought enough evidence forward to show that this was not a good plan. Can you Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, reading the decision, I found it sort of oddly 
up personal. Like they get really sort of judgmental about like specific city staff. And then on the flip side are like, like praising the developers team and even like a, a single resident who showed up to represent his community that, that uh, gave some submissions. They went on at length about basically how much they liked this person. Um, and that was a bit odd, mm-hmm. but yeah, they, they really question what the city had done in that interim period that we discussed to actually move their rail deck plan forward and really question what the city's intentions were in, in doing so. And, you know, in that sense, I think that those are some valid concerns about, you know, what was the, the city's plan and how were they approaching the developer's application? Uh, you know, this doesn't normally happen. You, you know, usually when you have a development application, the city does not have a competing development plan for that piece of land because those those pieces of land are, are typically privately owned and the city doesn't have an interest in them. Right. And so this is a really strange and unique situation where the, the city's att- intentions were well known, but they didn't always have, I guess, a full deck of cards. They, they, they didn't have the air rights. They didn't have the money to build. And despite lots of uh, planning experts and the community and others uh, agreeing that it was a great idea, it wasn't really fully fleshed out at any point. I guess to be fair to the city, the the interim period that uh, the OPAT was kind of chiding them for was the global pandemic. Uh, I mean, I know there's separate staff who would be in charge of overseeing the the Rail Deck Park proposal, but uh, I have to imagine that uh, the city had its hands tied in, in the year of 2020. Yeah, and a negotiation of this size, you know, takes time. You know, private developers spend years, sometimes a decade, you know, amassing the the land they need. You know, you hear about land speculators all the time. It takes a lot of time to assemble sometimes the pieces of land you need to build the condo, um, the size that you want uh, anywhere in this city. And we see that all the time. Um, and you don't typically hear the LPAT chiding developers for, for taking their sweet time to amass uh, the land for their development. That's usually not part of the conversation. So to be fair to the city, I mean, they, they were working towards that goal. Now I do, I think that they would have been hit another wall when it came to actually funding their plans, even if they had been able to secure the air rights, that would have been certainly a, a major challenge, especially given the, the pandemic. So this was meant to be, you know, one of John Tory's legacies for his, his so far two terms as mayor, as well as an olive branch to sort of downtown progressive urbanist types. What, what, is, what does that mean for John Tory's legacy? Yeah, I mean, that's a question we've been talking about, you know, amongst ourselves, you know, as city hall watchers. And it, it is interesting because the last time that my colleague uh, David Ryder and I uh, interviewed the mayor and kind of a sit down, we were, we were virtual because it was a pandemic, but he listed Rail Deck as one of his legacy projects. And at the time, that kind of surprised us that he was still sort of listing that because I had sort of put it in the back of my mind as like a thing that he had promised that was probably never going to happen, <laughs> at least not uh, in any significant way during his time as mayor. And what's interesting is that, you know, most of his legacy projects, as described by him, are major infrastructure projects that have been like significantly derailed or diminished. 
And I'm not sure what the average citizen will make of that uh, when the time comes. You know, we spoke about that this week uh, again amongst ourselves. And, you know, maybe the lesson here is like to be skeptical when politicians promise us, you know, large infrastructure plans, uh, you know, especially when it comes to transit in the city, which you and I and uh, my colleagues have talked about before. And I don't know if it will have any real lasting impact on how the average person sees him. I do think that the average person thought that Rail Deck Park would be a nice to have, but I think Toronto residents are pretty wise and, and know that just because they are told about like the big shiny dream doesn't mean that we'll actually get it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's hard to say what it will, what it will mean for him going forward. Certainly, uh, you know, we're waiting to see if he does officially decide to throw his hat into the ring to run for a third term. I think that uh, he'll certainly be attacked on this and and other legacy pieces. Um, but whether that will actually hurt him in an election, I, I don't know. I, I think the Toronto residents are, are smarter than we give them credit for sometimes. Well, Jennifer, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to lay, lay out this uh this long, sad story for us. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, I can't believe sometimes uh, how how long I've been covering it, and uh, I guess I'm I guess I'm kind of done covering it uh, until we see what the developers decide to build there and whether that's even possible. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much again. Thanks. And now, a rant. If you were planning a city for people, I imagine you'd start with universal needs. What are the things that everyone, no matter who they are, absolutely have to have? Things like housing and food jump immediately to mind, and we're not exactly crushing it on those fronts. But how far down the list is a place to relieve yourself? Pretty high up there, if you think about it, right? Like, essential? So, where are the public washrooms? I make a point of visiting a lot of parks all over the city, and I don't think I've been to a single one on any given day where all the washrooms were open and in good working order. We've made laws against relieving yourself in public, but never bothered to provide enough places to go lawfully. Pretty bad plan, buds. Not great, right? It's not really about the pandemic, because this was really the status quo before COVID. In the relatively new and beautiful Corktown Common Park this weekend, there was an epic line for the one open washroom. The other one was closed for winter. It's basically June. If you don't plan your city around basic human necessities, you're not planning a city for human beings, in which case, what are we even doing? And if we can't maintain the few human amenities we do have, then maybe we shouldn't even be talking about newer, shinier places that will be just as neglected, and this is why we can't have nice things. Now, a city's official plan, roughly speaking, is like a set of guiding principles about where to grow and develop. Every few years, municipalities have to review and adapt these plans. Currently, Toronto and other Ontario cities have a deadline of July 2022 to update their OPs to conform with the provincial government's growth plan. This seems like an opportunity to look at what needs to change about our city planning and what needs to be protected. To discuss what this review means for Toronto, we have Leslie Wu, 
Hello, I'm Leslie Wu, uh, CEO with Civic Action. And Pamela Robinson. Hi, I'm Pamela Robinson. I am a urban planning professor and the director at the School of Urban and Regional Planning at Ryerson University. Thank you both for coming. I wanted to have this little chat because Toronto and, and municipalities all over Ontario have to sort of review their official plan. This happens every couple of years. Uh, it's called a municipal comprehensive review. And I think to begin talking about why this is important and why this is possibly an opportunity for municipalities, especially Toronto, we should start by saying, what is an official plan? My understanding of it is that it largely helps direct where growth happens in cities and municipalities. And Leslie, you you helped craft um, a legislation back in the day called uh, Places to Grow, uh, which w- was specifically intended to help direct growth in the province. So how's that for a definition? And, and can we maybe expand on it? I think it's a reasonable definition, Glenn. It is, in the end, a regulatory system. It's one of several systems, but on its own and in and in of itself does not make for great cities. And so it is uh, a piece of the puzzle. And um, yeah, and, and it is meant to, and it should articulate a vision for a city or a region, and then the uh, regulatory pieces are meant to reinforce. But those regulatory pieces in and of themselves are not enough. Right. And and Pamela, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I would agree that the weight the official plans expected to lift, Liz, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but over time, as the complexity of cities has grown as the infrastructure deficit has expanded, as the tax bases have changed. Um, And of what we expect from our cities has changed. The official plan of the OP, you know, it used to just be the strategic plan and that was enough, but now it it needs to lift harder, but it's insufficient in and of itself. It was never intended to be sufficient on its own, but it just, it's buckling under the weight of the complexity of our cities. You know, I, I totally agree. And in terms of characterizing Toronto's current official plan, what would you say would typifies the direction that we've been going in the last couple of years? Um, I, I know there's been emphasis on tackling congestion. There has been a lot of talk about the missing middle, although we can get to whether or not that happens. What have we been trying to do with our official plan in Toronto for the last couple of years? I mean, the way I would answer this question is, So the word comprehensive plan, I think what it meant in 1989 or even 1990 is so different from what it should mean today. And what I mean by that, I mean, cities are systems and they're layers of, you know, whether it's social systems, economic systems, spatial systems. And the idea of a comprehensive plan, which, you know, the land use planning a regime has evolved uh, from just being only zoning and it's kind of evolved, but it has not kept pace with where the city is and over and above what 2020 has shown us where our urban systems are failing. And so if we think that how we planned the last time we planned, which was only, you know, the last time this was reviewed, it's every five years and the, and, and so forth. If for some reason we are of the view we just keep on that trajectory, I think we will have missed the opportunity that uh, the last year has shown us that our brains should be over exploding with ideas about how to do different. And so when I see 
what's in front of us now as the OP review, it is a little, uh, I think it's an, un, it's underachieving at this point. So I'll, I'll just add to that in that I, I know that we're here to talk about the official plan. I think there's a different conversation to be had later about is the practice of planning focusing on the right things? Mm-hmm. We could have an entirely different conversation about the bandwidth of municipal planning departments and you know, I would ask the question, why are we spending so much time on development control around things like committee of adjustment? Like, why do we really care how big someone's porch is or where their shed goes and how much time and energy is going into those processes when we have systemic racism, climate change, and the largest economic reboot needed, arguably, since the Depression, right? And so I think we have tools from another time that we're relying on to help us lay the pathway to a future that is infinitely more complex than those tools were imagined to respond to. So not to totally unpack your question, Glenn, but I think the OP is part of that suite of old tools that may not be ready for the reality of the world that we live in now. And certainly the one that we're going to encounter in the next 20 years, which will be the lifespan of, you know, the next version of the OP. In addition, I would say, even if with what we have now, we can do more. What I mean by that is what we have now is sort of operating in what a bit of a silo onto itself. And it doesn't ask the question, okay, how is the affordable housing strategy linked to our economic, um, like how is it explicitly connected to our decisions around financial tools, economic incentives, you know, job creation. How is it connected to our social services, like more explicitly? Because I think while it alludes to it, it needs to, at a minimum, if we can't overhaul or if it's going to take us time to create the new pieces and tools we need, in the interim, what we have just needs to really recognize it needs to embrace all the other systems more deliberately. And if I can give an example, you know, the tower, tower renewal program that happened and you know, the, the desire to retrofit to address issues of climate change and, and so forth. Well, there's a direct correlation with race and, and income to who lives in those tower buildings. And they are the ones suffering the most when the system goes down, when the, it's overly heated all those pieces, which has a direct correlation to ability to get to a job, perform well in your, in your school work, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't know that we, we may intuitively or somewhere in our hearts know this, but that official plan can be more explicit about requiring those considerations to be more deliberate. I just want to pick up on Leslie's point about how we make public money work harder. Um, In this post-COVID recovery era, in a time of infrastructure deficit, which is just staggering, we don't have the luxury of having public money only serve one goal, for example, better transit. It has to serve affordability outcomes. It has to create jobs. It has to have local benefit. We just... We have to make the public money work as hard as possible because there's going to be less of it and the needs are growing. And so the official plan can't solve all of these problems, but a really strategically focused official plan could help set a priority list where we really think, okay, if we have X number of dollars, where do the investments work the hardest? 
for the people who need it the most. And so I think the process and the conversation that we could have as part of the official plan review could start us thinking together really like a city as a whole. You know, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is like, you asked us, how would we characterize the current official plan? And I keep wondering, when are we going to have a plan that actually tells the story of Toronto as it is now? You know, I still feel like these are all just variations on Toronto just before amalgamation. Mm-hmm. You know, and we, we talk about, it's cute to talk about Toronto as a city of neighborhoods, but not all neighborhoods are created equal. And so I worry at times that this this romantic notion of a city of neighborhood keeps us from thinking about us as who are we as Toronto together? What does the city as a whole look like? What are our opportunities and obligations to each other? And what's the narrative of Toronto as a whole? Because it isn't the same in the four corners or in the middle. And I think some people who live in the middle don't really appreciate just how different it is. And, you know, this notion of a stable neighborhood to me in a city like Toronto, Toronto's story is a story of change. Stability is not what Toronto is all about, right? We need to embrace change and we need to use the momentum of change to deliver better outcomes for more people. And if people are uncomfortable with change, this probably isn't the place to live, right? I mean, change is is, is the vibe that runs through this city. And so we need to really celebrate that, but put that change to better, more equitable and sustainable work, I think. Right. Pam, you, you mentioned stable neighborhoods. Uh, a lot of the talk about housing and where girls should go in the city we talk about the yellow belt, which, you know, for listeners is large swaths of, of the city, which are sort of zoned for exclusively almost single family detached units that don't really reflect the type of city, the family makeup, the demographics that, that uh, people are looking for uh, in terms of housing in this city. Should the OP address something like that? You know, I, I just don't see how we can continue year over year to have a city where people can't afford to have a place to live. It's so important. We can't keep having a city that doesn't tackle head on the significant contributions we're making to global climate change. Like there is a significant reboot that needs to happen and kicking it up the road doesn't make it any easier. Right. You know, dreaming about some utopian future that's never going to happen isn't going to do it. We have to confront the hard realities of making this city more affordable and more sustainable. And we're going to have to do the work we need to lay a foundation for those things to start happening now. We can't just keep putting it off and promising affordable housing unit delivery in the next 15 years. The housing backlog list is staggering. Mm. People don't have places to live that are affordable. We need to do better. It's among the most important things. We have to fix it. Right. It's hard, but we have to figure it out. You know, if this was a scientific experiment, which I also ref- often refer to the city as a, you know, one of the largest human experiments in terms of the immigration, the, the you know, people come from all around, we would be monitoring and tracking let's use the planning system. What's working? What's not working? So what is it? Like I'll use employment land zoning. You know, we're constantly trying to preserve 
areas of our city for jobs, Mm -hmm. but we don't actually connect that zoning activity to the economic development. Like what's really happening in economic development? What is the future of work, et cetera, et cetera. So no matter how hard we try to zone X, Y, and Z space, if we haven't figured out that piece, in many respects, you're sterilizing land and so forth. So I, so I think, you know, it's, it, it's behooves us in an official plan review to not just keep, you know, reiterating some of the things, you know, we need TOD, we need more density, we need affordable housing, but we need to kind of look back and say, what is it actually, we've been trying this for like three cycles of this plan review and it has resulted in no significant improvement. Therefore, what are we going to do? Are we just going to keep begging for it or hoping for it? I, I, at a certain point, any scientist and anybody curious enough would say, okay, so that doesn't work. What is, what is it that we need to work? And, and so there is a huge need for some innovation, uh, some greater creativity around and, and leadership, frankly, to actually end things and start new things. So it, it sounds like both of you sort of agree that, you know, the official plan is, is a blunt and somehow at the same time, maybe nebulous tool. Is that fair to say? I think the question I would have, I don't have the answer. Mm-hmm. Is it actually helping us or hindering us at this point? So in, in terms of this review, what would be a sign of health, uh, of positive growth, since we have a chance to sort of break it back open and decide what we like and what we want to get rid of, ideally? There's a real opportunity here. I think that, you know, I I participated in this stakeholder consultation that the planning department did just two days ago, introducing the OP review. And one of the things that I was really interested in was seeing the process that they laid out, but also I'm curious to see how people in Toronto are going to respond to the civic conversation about the Toronto that we want. You know, people have been under tremendous duress for 15 months due to COVID. Mm-hmm. Many people's lives have been the smallest geographic lives they've probably lived in a very long time, while other people have had to continue on in the bigger city at large. And so we have two, you know, it's kind of a blunt division, but two very different groups of people, people who have had to keep going to work, but lots of people who've been at home as well. And so Asking people about the city they want right now is both important but but challenging, I think, because people's most recent lived experience is so different and bifurcated. I think the other thing that will be really interesting to see is, do people mentally have the bandwidth to think ahead to what they want outside of the things that they desperately need, right? And, and in some cases, those things are the same things, but but part of the official plan process typically involves some magical thinking. Mm-hmm. And I don't really have a read for how much energy people have for participating in those kinds of processes right now because so many people in Toronto, including the many of the people who desperately need the plan to deliver more, for example, affordable housing outcomes, have lived amongst the hardest 15 months of their lives. It's an important time to have a civic conversation, but I suspect an incredibly challenging one, too, to if we really want to listen to the lived experience of the people who've had an incredibly difficult um, time during COVID. It's a good point, Pamela. And I think um, now more than ever, 
it is absolutely critical that we listen to the lived experience. Cause we, and, and the reason I say that is because the divide that has widened during the pandemic means that the stories of living in the city, they've been amplified, you know, great experiences and terrible experiences. Like, like they've just gotten, the extremes have gotten more extreme in terms of the type of experience people have. And so if you go, if you're actually, first of all, able to capture those, and then you're a plant, you're sitting there as the planner trying to find a future that's fairly apart and then trying to find a way forward with a kind of quote unquote common vision. I don't know how you actually address that with the kind of traditional way about thinking, okay, we're going to have a mission statement and we're all going to agree on the words of the objectives of our piece. I, I don't know that people will want to see it in that way. Like, I don't think they will want to see the city in that way. I think they'll want to see it in a more multifaceted way. So it almost requires, you know, the traditional way of thinking of a process is we're going to talk to a bunch of people. We're going to have a couple of options or scenarios. We're going to choose one and we're all going to kind of refine the words of it. And then we're going to implement it and have ways of dealing with it. I almost feel like the city is, will have like five different versions of itself and could have five different versions of itself. And I think that's a way of thinking about ourselves that is not necessarily chaotic because I, you're right. People are at different stages and, and there's been a historical desire to just always have one shining light to move forward. But I think it's, this is a time for a lot more plurality and how we think about planning because the energy level is going to be so disparate. If the old way wasn't working, it's either you're going to fix it or try a whole new thing. And uh, Pamela, uh, do you have a final thought? On the optimistic side, like, this is an opportunity to, like, you don't have to bring forward past practice. Like, if there was ever a time to fundamentally think, like, okay, it's time to redo our OP. How are we going to do it? If you're going to roll out a brand new way of seeking the wisdom of Torontonians, this is your moment, right? This is the time. You have tremendous imperative. We have so many reasons to do things differently. This is the moment. And so the city needs the new vision. We, we know about the things that are wrong. We've also been forced to think about the way in which our city could work in quite different ways. Even, you know, like in terms of sidewalks and, and access to public space and, and basic things like, you know, the ability to distance outside stores. Like the to-do list is really big, but the how we have that conversation piece is really, really important to begin to sort right now. And I think that people may be more open than ever to trying new ways of working because we all really understand how vitally important it is to do things differently on the other side. I think that's a great place to leave it. Uh, Leslie, Pamela, thank you so much for joining me on a Friday to talk about the official plan. I really appreciate it. And that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please tell The Line at the Pop-Up Vaccination Clinic, your Leafs Playoffs group chat, and the Sage and August members of the local Planning Appeal Tribunal. 
If you have a moment, please share, subscribe, or give us a rating on iTunes as it will help us reach new listeners. We have been nominated, among several other fantastic shows, for a Digital Publishing Award for Best News and Politics Podcast. Congratulations and good luck to all the nominees. Winners will be announced on June 11th. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can reach us on Twitter at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto, which is open for curbside pickup, or you can visit the Spacing Store at spacingstore.ca. You can also pick up the latest copy of the magazine, all about public health, today. In the meantime, open up those washrooms. Cheers. Cheers.